If you've ever wondered what tricks and tips specialist medical accountants use to manage their own personal finances, then today's episode is for you as we are joined by Jenna and Chris who are married to each other and they give us their best tips for how you can improve your own family finances. So they talk about the tax benefits of being married and how you can utilize tax breaks to reduce the cost of caring for any children that you might have. They also tell us about how limited companies can help to spread your overall family tax burden. And we also talk about budgeting and how to budget when your income is variable, such as if you're self-employed. So this episode is gonna be so useful to so many of our listeners. And if you are finding these podcasts useful, don't forget to subscribe in your podcast player of choice because we release a new episode every Tuesday and I don't want you to miss out. And if you do get a minute, leaving us a rating and a review really helps other doctors to find out about the podcast. And thank you so much for listening. There's so many great podcasts out there. We're really honored that you choose to listen to ours and I hope that today's episode is useful to you. Let's get into it. The Medics Money podcast helps doctors, dentists and other professionals make better financial decisions. Hosted by myself, Dr Tommy Perkins, a GP. And by me, Dr Ed Cantelow, a GP but also a chartered accountant and chartered tax advisor. This podcast is for general information only and does not constitute any form of advice and tax allowances and rates are subject to change. So on today's podcast, I'm delighted to be joined by a husband and wife team, Jenna and Chris Clark. Hi, guys. Morning, Tommy. Hi, Tommy. This is the second time we've had a husband and wife team on the podcast because myself and my wife did a podcast episode together on family finances. And we're going to cover similar things today, but you are both specialist medical accountants who not only live together, but also work together. Is that right? Yeah, that's right. Dream Team Reunited. I love it. So do you want to just give yourselves the intro about, you know, why you're qualified to talk about this pretty complex stuff that we're going to be talking about today? Yeah, absolutely. The answer to that question is that that's what we do on a day-to-day basis. We are both healthcare specialist accountants. We head up our healthcare department here at Monahans. We work with a large number of GPs, consultants, practices, PCNs to explain the complicated matters of tax in an understandable way. And so therefore we thought it would be a good idea to come and have a chat and explain these things to a wider audience. Personally, I've worked with clinicians since 2003. So I've been doing this for more years than I want to add up right now. (laughs) Indeed, and I've also been working with the medical profession for over 10 years now. So the usual GPs, locums, consultants, etc. And as me and Jenna are indeed married with children, we are acutely aware of the sort of issues that we're going to cover today and how it can affect family finances. So yeah, hopefully we're in a good place to bring our own experiences to this on a personal level as well as a professional one. Yeah, I love it. I feel like myself and Joe, my wife, did like an amateur's guide to family finances. And this is going to be a fascinating insight into how two accountants manage their finances. I just want to ask two questions which aren't on the script already, sorry, but one, do you use a spreadsheet to run your family finances? Absolutely. Yeah. Of course. <laughs> of course. <laughs> Goes about saying, doesn't it? Number two, because I know accountants always say, file your self-assessment nice and early. You know, don't leave it to the last minute. Now, Ed, my colleague, is an accountant as well. And he filed, I'm sure he won't mind me saying, but he files his like 30th January. What's your sort of take on that personal filing deadline? For me personally, it would be around July time, I would say. Depends wow. if there's a refund due or not. 
to be honest. <laughs> yeah, good point. If you've got tax to pay, then it's more common to be towards the end of January. If there's a refund, yeah, get it done as soon as possible. Nice answer. I'm just going to say that I'm slower than Chris, so <laughs> we'll leave it at that. Yeah, probably heading towards Ed's kind of timelines and, you know, at least 24 hours before the deadline. I guess if you yeah. can file yourself, you can leave it as late as you want. But if you can't file yourself, please don't leave it that late. Yeah, you don't have to pay the tax when you file it. So, yeah, just get it done so you know where you are, at least. But to be fair to Ed, he's got a lot on his plate. You know, he's a doctor as well. So let's cut him some slack. He's on holiday at the moment. So no slack is being cut whatsoever. (laughs) So you mentioned, you know, GPs. So is it common for GPs and doctors to be married to other GPs? Yes, it is very much so. And in fact, doctors tend to be a little like accountants in that we only really marry our own kind. Now, whether that's to do with the nature of the training and uh, the lack of time for both professions, I'm sure, particularly for doctors, but it is very common for us to have clients who are GPs married to other GPs, or at the very least, other healthcare professionals. So what this means is that we often have two pretty high-earning individuals in the household. But as we know, we're all acutely aware of this with the ever-increasing cost of living at the moment, pension contributions still going through the roof, medical indemnity costs, and so on. The medical profession is certainly not immune to these financial pressures. So it is very important that GP couples and doctor couples generally are maximizing their allowances, all of the benefits that are available and their income wherever possible to try and allay these pressures a little bit. And it is important to say, however, that although we are talking about doctors that are married to each other, the things we're talking about today are not exclusive to doctors who are married to each other, but they apply to most family budgets. And I think that all medical professionals that may be feeling a little bit squeezed financially at the moment can hopefully get something from today yeah definitely and we do have lots of non-doctors that listen to the podcast so hi non-doctor listeners and great it's going to be useful to them so i wouldn't be doing my job if i didn't ask two accountants about the tax benefits of being married there's lots of benefits of being married but come on let's get into the tax benefits (laughs) well there are some but there's not a huge amount compared to what there may have been in the past. There's absolutely no way I'd recommend that anybody got married purely for tax reasons, but there are some benefits to doing so. Yeah, possibly the most relevant of those these days is the fact that there are exemptions for spouses that transfer assets to each other. So in normal circumstances, if you were to dispose of an asset and the sale proceeds exceeded the original cost, there would likely be capital gains tax to pay on the profits. Now, if you transferred an asset to your partner, i.e. someone you were not married to, there could potentially be tax to pay because that transfer would be treated as a sale for capital gains tax purposes. However, if you transfer the asset to a husband or wife or civil partner, these transfers are totally exempt from capital gains tax. If we had an example, we have a hypothetical couple, one of whom owns property before they marry and are looking to share that property after marriage. The capital gains tax benefits are... Firstly, as Chris has mentioned, when a share of this property is transferred to the spouse, there's no capital gains tax to pay. But secondly, when the property is sold in the future, both spouses will qualify for an annual exemption for capital gains tax. Now, under the current tax rules, this means that the first £12,300 of the profit is tax-free for both parties. So you get two lots of tax allowances instead of one when selling the property. And then there's also a potential income tax saving for a hypothetical couple as well. If they own the property jointly, this means that we can share the annual profits between the spouses, which can be beneficial, particularly if one spouse has lower earnings than the other and therefore pays less tax than the other. 
and it can also help retain child benefit, which we'll explain in more detail later. There is a very specific but fairly straightforward process to follow to put this in place, but it can't be done retrospectively. So if it's something that you're thinking about, you need to be thinking about it fairly soon so that you can start claiming those benefits as soon as possible. Yeah, we would also say that in certain circumstances, depending on the value of the property and the mortgage position, the transfer of a property between spouses could potentially generate stamp duty charges in some cases. So it does need to be looked at carefully in conjunction with an accountant just before any transaction action is undertaken. But yes, from the capital gains perspective, there is effectively no gain, no loss. So there are benefits for married couples. But the question that we get asked the most for married couples is whether marriage allowance is something worth getting married for. Now, historically, a marriage allowance gave a significant tax saving, but the modern day marriage allowance is far less generous. Every taxpayer is entitled to a tax-free personal allowance, which is currently £12,570 per annum. And if the lower earning spouse doesn't use all of their allowance, there is a mechanism where the unused portion can be transferred to the higher earning spouse. This is only possible where you earn less than £50,270, i.e. you're not a higher rate taxpayer. And so it doesn't apply to a large number of doctors. And the amount of tax saved is only £252 per annum. So it's definitely not worth getting married for. It is important to note there that when I'm talking about your earnings being £50,270, this is your taxable income. So that's your salary, then deducting your NHS pension contributions. So if you're earning, say, £55,000 as a salaried GP, you may still be eligible to claim this depending on your pension contributions. And then if you are able to take advantage of it, it's a simple online application. And you can also go back to transfer the allowance for the previous three to four tax years as well. So although it's not a huge amount individually, it is worth doing if you are eligible. It's also worth noting that all of the rules that we're talking about today surrounding married couples apply equally to same-sex couples as well as opposite-sex couples. So everything we speak about here applies totally equally. In fact, Although we said that we wouldn't recommend getting married for tax reasons, an interesting thing that we have seen in the last few years is that long-standing couples of the same gender who are not previously able to marry have actually taken the opportunity to get married for tax reasons, particularly if they have significant assets. So it's always worth remembering that all of these opportunities, these tax planning are absolutely open to all. And there may be you know, some listeners out there who that applies to that may decide to take the plunge for that reason now that they can. Yeah, good point. That definitely is great that it applies to everybody. So I reckon we've done the tax benefits of being married there, but you did mention the sort of child benefit, and that is something that we get asked about a lot. So we've sort of established that definitely not worth getting married for tax reasons. Is it worth having kids for tax reasons? (laughs) Well, if you do have children, there are a few things to consider to ensure you're maximising your income. Now, we'd always say, again, don't have children just for the tax benefits, but there are a few things that can be done to at least alleviate some of the costs involved in having children. So 
Firstly, child benefit is payable to all households with children who are under 18 and in full-time education. And it's payable at £21.80 per week for your first child and £14.45 per week for the second and subsequent children, regardless of how many children you have. Now, one thing that we do tend to notice with doctors is that they often have quite big families. So it's not uncommon to see a family with four children with the doctors as parents. And in this case, a family with four children would be entitled to £3,387 each year in child benefit payments. And that can, of course, make a significant difference to family finances. Now, this is not specific to married couples. It's relevant to households who contain a child or children. And it's potentially with a wide variety of differing family circumstances, including if you like the traditional nuclear family, but also blended families and also single parents. Now, you may be aware that if your income's above a certain level, you can lose your entitlement to child benefit. But there's a number of key things to note here when determining this, as we see many couples who think they've lost their entitlement or are going to, but in fact are entitled to more of this benefit than they think. And that's because the rules are based on the highest earner in a household in a particular year. This can vary year on year. It's not based on total household income. So if the highest household earner, regardless of whether they are a biological parent of the child or not, has taxable income of an excess of £60,000, pounds, then you do lose all of any child benefit you've received. However, I would again stress here, this is taxable income. And as we've said before, this is after NHS pension contributions. So you could be earning £60,000, say, as a salary GP, but after pension of 12.5%, this will be down to £52,500 and potentially with the option of keeping some child benefit. In addition to this, expenses such as medical indemnity, subscriptions, other tax relievable expenses such as medical equipment and so on can also be set against this taxable income figure. So you may end up finding that actual taxable income is even less than this again. And crucially, if your income is between 50,000 and 60,000, and again, this is taxable income, you do still keep a percentage of child benefit. If your income is 51,000, you only lose 10% of the total. So if you're anywhere around the threshold, then I would say absolutely do not be too hasty in stopping claiming this as you may be entitled to at least some of it. And if it's under 50,000, you can keep it all. And as we mentioned before, it's the highest earner this applies to. So you could potentially have two people earning £49,999 each and keep it all. Whereas if one partner earns 99998 and the other earns nothing, they could lose it all. So same household income, but a different result in this case. And this is really important to consider as a couple, if you're looking at, say, taking on extra income to try and keep you both under this limit. Let's say you've got two locum GPs that have a child together and their workload varies and they're thinking about what their workload may be towards the end of the tax year. They may wish to look carefully at which of them may actually take on this additional work if they're both somewhere around the £50,000 limit as they get closer to the end of the tax year, just planning that to make sure that you both stay within that limit and that as a family and as a household, you're maximising your allowances and your child benefits. And the other thing to note is that once you've disclaimed the child benefit, it can be very hard to claw it back again. So a general strategy I would recommend is perhaps claim it anyway and keep it in a separate bank account because the worst case scenario is that you would need to pay it back via your tax return. They won't charge interest on it or anything like that. You would just have to pay back what you claimed. But if there is a chance you could reclaim at least some, then it's absolutely worthwhile having that in your hands and 
yeah, just avoiding potentially losing out. Absolutely. And then another point to raise is the tax-free childcare scheme that's available from HMRC. So this is where you pay money into your tax-free childcare account, and this is then topped up by the government. Therefore, if you pay £80 in, this is uplifted to £100. You can claim a total of £2,000 of the uplift in each tax year. So a total of £10,000 to be spent for childcare costs. This can then be used to pay for registered childcare providers such as nurseries, breakfast clubs, after school clubs and so on for children under 11 or under 16 if your child has a disability. These rules apply very much to the child, so there can only be one account per child, only one partner can apply for the account, and if you are separated, you need to decide which parent sets up the account, or if you can't decide, HMRC will rule on it for you. Now, they never make it easy to claim these things, and as we know from our own experience, you have to reconfirm your eligibility every three months, and the HMRC website can be a torturous process. But when it does work, it does give you a useful boost to help with those costs. The scheme is generally only available to those in work or on annual leave, parental leave, and so on, and is not available to those earning over £100,000. Now, again, this is not household income. You could have a situation where both partners earn £99,999 and be eligible, and another situation where one partner earns £110,000 and the other £20,000 and not to be eligible. But again, this is taxable income, so the same principles apply as we mentioned earlier. This is after pension contributions, expenses, charity donations, and so on. Some parents are still using one of the older childcare vouchers schemes, and this is where your employer purchases vouchers for childcare on your behalf and deducts it from your salary before tax and pension. So you effectively pay less than the value of the voucher in order to obtain it. Note that if you are a member of one of these schemes, you cannot access the newer tax-free childcare scheme. So you may wish to look at which of the two gives the best result. And also to note with the older scheme, Depending on the provider, some vouchers do have a set expiry date, so you should ensure that you're not building up significant amounts that you then lose. So I think in summary, there, there's maybe not tax benefits of having children, but there are certain things that are out there that can help with the costs and also just to make family finances a little bit easier. Other things you can do for your children in terms of tax-free savings, for example, there are junior ISAs you can set up for them we would just say on that just be aware that once the child turns 18 it's their money and you can do nothing about it and we've all been 18 year olds and what we would have done with a few thousand pounds at that time who on earth knows but if you think you can trust your children then it's absolutely worth doing that's a great point the way i look at it, my kids have all got a junior stocks and shares isa and the way i look at it they're either going to have an amazing 18th birthday party or i've got sort of 18 years to instill some kind of financial <laughs> discipline and regular savings habit but either way i'm pretty relaxed about it it's a good party could be good that was such a useful summary of you know child benefit and tax-free childcare. and if your head is in a spin there is a website called Childcare Choices, which is run by the government. And you just type in your age of your children, your income, and it just sort of gives you a guide on what could be useful. And it's really good to get into the specifics there. And it does seem a little bit unfair. As you say, two of you could be on 99,000 and still claim. But if one of you is on over 100, it's not. So 
yeah, it is massively unfair, really, but it just shows the value of having to plan this carefully and look at your finances as a family. And yeah, if you are in the position where you can control your income to a certain extent, which we'll be coming on to shortly anyway, then yeah, it's worth looking at that and make sure that you can to be honest, game the system. It is what it is. It's there to be played. So uh, yeah, sometimes we have to play these games. And this podcast is basically people like yourselves giving really precise and detailed information and then me trying to make a sweeping generalization. So correct me if I'm wrong, but in general, it's more efficient for you to spread your household income around. So if one of you earns 100 and one of you earns nothing, from a tax point of view, it would be much more efficient if both of you were on 50. Or am I putting words into your mouth? No, you're absolutely right. And that's precisely why Chris makes sure that I work and he doesn't work the job of two people so that I can be a kept woman and do whatever I want for the day. (laughs) That's why you're here right now. Okay, great. That was really good. I mean, I guess leading on from that kind of theme, shall we say, another thing that we get asked, and I'm sure you all the time is, you know, limited companies, give me the high level or details on that. Sure. I think the key thing is that a use of limited companies can absolutely help in the right circumstances. And mentioned a minute ago about spreading income. And if you have you know, two partners, one of whom doesn't work, then they've got, for example, a tax-free allowance that they're not using potentially. So you know, what you want to make sure is that you're not wasting those. Now, there's a number of potential uses for limited companies. And I know you've touched on this before on previous podcasts, but on this specific point, we can consider that companies are a very good way of controlling the level of taxable income you may have. So let's say you had a salaried role as a GP and you carried out locum work on top of this, then operating that locum work through a company, which of course wouldn't be pensionable, but you may not want it to be pensionable if you have your salaried role that you're already pensioning, It can enable you to control how much you take from that company, and that could potentially enable you to keep your overall taxable income under £50,000 while still building up a pot of money within the company that can be used in the future when you may be in a lower tax environment. And careful planning with your accountant and with your advisors can potentially bring significant savings in these circumstances. Now, another use of a company could potentially be to fund a sabbatical or maybe maternity leave. So again, if you've built up funds within a company when you're not earning for whatever reason, whether that's by choice or for other circumstances, then you could draw on these funds again as tax efficiently as possible. And another thing to consider, and this is something that I'm speaking to doctors quite a lot about at the moment, is that with a newer pension scheme, because we had to come onto the pension scheme at some point, the newer version of the scheme, the 2015 scheme, as you will know, Tommy, you cannot take this until your state pension age, which is currently 68, but it is linked to the state pension age. So if they whack that up, then you will not be able to take the pension until even later. So there's a real chance of a huge cohort of doctors who quite rightly will want to retire at 60 or the late 50s because they quite frankly had enough by then. But there could be a time lag of up to a decade before they can actually take the pension. So a long time scale with potential potentially no income. So again, having those funds built up in a company could give another option to tide you over during that period. Now, another use for children potentially could be to have them as shareholders in a company if you have uh, grown up children. And again, it's a very simplistic way of looking at it. There would need to be a lot of discussions with your advisors to work out exactly how it's structured in the right way so that things can be done Firstly, tax efficiently, and secondly, most importantly, legally and correctly. But yeah, it's absolutely something you can do 
use your family members. You know, once you've brought up your children, you can make them as tax efficient as possible. Definitely. Tax efficient children are definitely a good thing. And I think you're right. You know, the 2015 scheme of the pension is linked to state retirement age. So if you want to retire early, you either get an actuarially reduced pension, which is just reducing your pension, or you can fill in the gap between your desired retirement age and your actual retirement age. And I think a lot of doctors haven't quite realized that the 2015 scheme is linked to state retirement age. And that could be a massive thing. So I've talked about this at length on the podcast, but I'm definitely not working to state retirement age. And my plan is pretty simple is spend less than I earn, divert the free cash flow into a investment portfolio. So not advice, not right for everyone, but just have a think about, you know, that 2015 scheme, if you want to retire before state retirement age, you're getting an actually reduced pension, which might not be a bad thing, you know, but I'm just flagging it up and Chris is flagging it up. So it seems like it could be important. Okay, we've kind of done this one in reverse, because if somebody asked me for like my one tip to improve your finances, apart from, you know, use a specialist medical accountant, of course, is spend less than you earn. Because if you can spend less than you earn, you get a positive cash flow at the end of the month, and then you can divert that money into either paying down bad debts like credit cards and things or investing it. And until you can know what you spend, it's going to be hard to spend less than you earn. And therefore, we have to sort of say probably one of the most feared and boring words, but in personal finance is you need a budget, right? So what's your take on budgets and budgeting? Yeah, you're absolutely right. You do need a budget. And thankfully, Chris deals with the Clark family budget because it's not even fun to accountants to budget at home. So I do feel the pain in the reluctance to want to budget. The key thing I would say is to try and keep things as fixed as possible. So if you have a starting point of your income, then we really need to try and fix the likely expenses as much as you can. So there are some easy things here, like your mortgage or your rent, council tax, utilities, etc. pay by direct debit. You can also pay any professional subscriptions by direct debit, car payments, etc. But then we need to consider the things relating to your likely household spend on food, the savings that you need to make for tax and do a realistic budget for entertainment. So eating out, days out, family days and so on. And then be realistic, but also potentially overstate it a little just to give yourself some leeway. And then when you get to the end of your calculation, you can see if there's any money left over. And as Tommy says, you can choose what to do with that. It might be a more exciting holiday. It might be some sort of financial planning that happens or savings for children and so on. Or if you're in the position where your expenses exceed your income, then you suddenly get to a point where you know your budget doesn't work and you need to redress that balance. And that might be reducing your entertainment fund, never fun. Or it might be that you need to look at how you can maximize your income. And obviously that doesn't necessarily mean doing more work. It can be more tax efficient earnings, like we say, with companies and so on. So the key is to have information, to know what your plan is, what your position is, rather than for everything to be a surprise at the end of the month. Or, you know, some people really feel uncomfortable with finances and try to avoid looking at it for as long as they possibly can and get to a point where they are in a really quite uncomfortable position and 
then it's far more difficult to get out from than if you knew that in advance. So that's really the fundamentals behind budgeting is trying to make sure you know what's coming in, you know what's going out and that you at least have a positive at the end of the month. Yeah, it's all about planning, really, as we mentioned before, about having a plan, whether that's for a pension provision and that potential gap that we've got of the decade, or just planning your day-to-day life and expenses. It's knowing with some sort of certainty what things are going to look like at the end of the month. And if they're looking bad, well, let's not put heads in the sand. Let's come up with a plan to make that better. And as ever, there's only two ways to make things better is either earn more or spend less. And it'll be up to individual and couples and families to decide which of those makes things work for them. But having that information in your hands is, you know, as we move into an increasingly cost heavy era, so it seems is becoming more and more vital. Yeah, definitely. And I don't know how you guys do it, but me and Joe do our budget and plan together, because if you have to make tough financial choices about you know what things you're gonna if you're gonna cut your spending if you do it together it's like it's everyone's fault is what i find and then but then everyone's engaged everyone knows the plan everyone knows why the budget's gone down and i just yeah try we try to do it together as much as possible i don't know how you guys do it yeah we're exactly the same Chris puts the numbers together, we sit down and we have a you know board meeting at the dining room table, <laughs> have a chat about what this looks like, where we're happy to cut back and where we need to do something differently so that, yes, we're both on board with the plan to make our cash flow look better come the end of the month. And I think also you know, what we certainly try and do is budget for nice things as well. So yeah, if you want to have a decent holiday a year, put that in the budget. I think, how much do I realistically want to spend to have the sort of life that I want? And let's make that work within the budget. So you're not always then feeling that you're kind of having to save up for treats, if you like. It's already there. It's planned for. You know you can afford certain things and have the lifestyle you want, or hopefully you can have the lifestyle you want because you've made a plan for it. And yeah, I think that's a much better way of doing things. It can be a bit of a dull thing to do, admittedly, but you know, ultimately, if it makes your life better, then just do it. Definitely. And like, it's great to use all these complex tax things to save money, but I just still think if you can just get a budget and stick to it, is you're going to be doing really, really well. One thing I wanted to ask is a lot of our listeners have quite variable income. Maybe they're locums or they've got private work or how do you kind of advise people to budget if their income is kind of unpredictable, shall we say? Yeah, this can be a real issue for, if you like, fully self-employed doctors like GP partners and locums, because as you say, their income year on year, so by definition, month on month, can be very uncertain. Now, for salary GPs, it should hopefully be less of an issue because they should be on a set salary with a guaranteed net monthly income. And that can be their starting point for creating a monthly budget, which is a fairly straightforward thing to do, as we've said. And one of the kind of bugbears that we often find with particularly newer GP partners is they'll talk about their salary from the practice. And as you know all too well, Tommy, there's no such thing as a salary in partnership world. So for GP partners and for locums as well, the key thing really is to try and work with your accountants, your professional advisors, and try and clarify what your likely monthly earnings are going to be in some way. Yeah. So for GP partners, we would hope and anticipate that your accountants were working with your practice and your practice manager to come up with a projection of drawings for the current year based on estimates of likely profitability, tax and pension, which although an estimate does at least give some certainty as to monthly income. If your partnership 
pays fluctuating drawings throughout the year, consider approaching the partners to discuss the possibility of fixed drawings to make home budgeting easier for you. Although that does mean that the practice cash flow needs to be monitored carefully, it is absolutely achievable for almost every practice and it does make home life far less stressful for partners who, let's face it, don't want to add any more stress to their day. For locums, it should be possible throughout the year for your accountant to give you an idea of the likely tax and pension position based on your income to date. And so as long as you have a fairly steady work pattern, say doing six sessions a week, then a projection of likely net monthly earnings is fairly easy to calculate. However, there is another area which I'm sure everyone will roll their eyes at here, which commonly causes issues for both individual GPs and practices, and that's PCSE. The delays in processing pension certificates can cause immense difficulties both for individual GPs and practices. So if we start with salaried GPs, PCC can sometimes be months or even years behind in making pension adjustments when the balances are finally deducted from the practice which employs the GP. This can sometimes result in the practice asking the GP to pay up to four-figure sums to reimburse the practice for the pension that's finally caught up. So firstly, salaried GPs need to be submitting their Type 2 pension certificates annually and chasing PCSE if there are delays in their certificate being processed, because not only does that cause budgeting issues, but it also delays your pension record being up to date. And secondly, if the practice does ask for a large reimbursement, don't be afraid to discuss payment options with the practice. Many practices would be happy to allow you to reimburse the practice over a number of months, for example. Occasionally, you may have left a practice before the pension position has been corrected, and you may be contacted by a previous employer to reimburse them for historic employee pension contributions that have only now been processed by PCSE. So where this is the case, do check that the tax is being accounted for correctly. You may be able to claim tax relief on these contributions, and conversely, if a refund is paid to you, you may need to declare this income to HMRC and pay an element of your refund back in tax to HMRC. So that's the position for salary GPs. Locums tend to pay their superan along with their locum A and B forms. So it tends to cause less of an issue in terms of budgets and so on. And for partners, as long as your practice and your practice accountants are taking superan into account with your drawings, then you shouldn't be in a position where you suddenly need to start finding cash for pension contributions. If that is the case, then I would definitely say raise that with the accountants so that you can change this moving forwards because nobody wants to suddenly have to take a hit in their drawings one month purely because PCSE has decided to catch up with your pension contributions. So the key point with all of this is that these are unknown and sometimes unpredictable things which can have a real impact on your monthly finances. So if you are a GP working at a practice, there are really important matters to discuss with your practice and your accountant to try and make everything as predictable as possible, which will make sticking to your budgets far, far easier.
Yeah, and I think another key point here as well is that I think particularly with younger, newer partners, they're sort of challenging the norms a little bit in partnership. You know, I'm sure you're aware, Tommy, partnership has been a bit of a traditional place at times, and there is a way of doing things. But I think just because a practice says this is the way we do drawings, you know, let's let's challenge that potentially. You know, if you're a younger partner in your 30s with kids and a mortgage, you know, you want to have some certainty over your income. And ultimately, this is your business. Yes, you're in partnership with other people, but it is your business. It's up to you as partners to decide how you remunerate yourself and the format that you do that. And if you can come up with a way that works for you as a group of partners better than what you're doing. And yeah, we do see practices that have these kind of slightly odd drawings arrangements where they vary each month and it can often cause some real problems for particularly newer partners. So take control of it. You know, you have the power as a partner and as a business owner to make these changes in your practice if necessary. Yeah, brilliant. If you are a GP and you're having problems with PCSE, we have a whole episode on what you can do about it. So episode 56. And if you are a GP and you're not having problems with PCSE, can you let me and Jenna and Chris know the secret? Because I don't really know anyone who's not having problems with PCSE. We should probably move on. The other thing is, I'm not sure when this episode is going to go out, but I've got to obviously plug the Medics Money GP Partnership course. If you want to learn the essential business skills that we weren't taught during training and all the ways that you can run your practice better. The next course is starting on October the 5th. And I don't know when this is going out, so that might be totally irrelevant. But if not, just check out medicsmoney.co.uk forward slash GP course advert over. We need the jingle now. But no, the partnership course is really popular. And, you know, we're not taught this sort of stuff as GPs. And so we either pick it up as we go along and learn from our mistakes, which is not ideal, or come on our course and we'll supercharge your learning and you'll learn everything you need to know in a year with our supportive community. And another advert, no more adverts. That was an amazing summary and it's fascinating to see how you know two finance professionals manage their accounts and i'm so happy that it's done on a spreadsheet because there are like apps and stuff out there that can do this as well and i think i was thinking about switching from a spreadsheet to the app but it's not happened yet so what's your take homes and what's your things that are gonna really move the needle in a big way for families well i think just to follow up what you said there tommy actually is do something that works for you. you know, if that is a spreadsheet, if that's an app, whatever it may be, there's no right answer. You know, if that involves writing everything out longhand, which to be fair, Jenna does like doing for a lot of our own finances. If it works, great, do it as long as it is a plan of some sort. So I think that's first takeaway. But I think really there's two key things to look at when looking at your overall family finances. And firstly, make sure you're maximizing everything. So whether that's your tax allowances, claims, your efficiency, your income, just generally make sure you're leaving no stone unturned in maximizing that position. You know, these can be incremental gains. It may seem pointless to do a few quid here but 100 quid here 200 quid there suddenly it starts to add up for a real benefit for you and your family the more of these things that you can do and maximize and then secondly it's about information so you need to be making sure that you have access to all of the info that you need and that's liaising with your accountant to make sure that you have the full info on your monthly income, your tax liabilities and your allowances, to also being realistic on your expenses and budgeting for things to ensure that you have no nasty surprises at the end of the month or the end of the year. And as the cost of living continues to rise, a situation which, as Chris has said, doctors are not immune from, this really will become more important than ever. Yeah, I think ultimately, 
it's very easy to be driven by events and to feel that you're powerless in these things but you know do as much as you can to drive things for you and have the information make the plan be in control of your finances rather than letting them control you and i think that's the biggest takeaway that i would say from today brilliant and you know the best way to get in control of your finances is to learn about them and this podcast will be so useful to so many people so thank you both so much for your time what's the best way to get hold of you where are you based where are you working we're both based in Taunton down in Somerset and that's where one of the Monaghan's offices is located but yeah we cover the whole of the south of England pretty much we've got clients all over the place but best way to contact us is well, either via the website or via the healthcare email address and Jenna you can let us know what that is that is healthcare at monahans.co.uk you can also use the medics money website to refer to us and also if anybody's attending the best practice show in October in Birmingham if this podcast comes out before then we are hosting a stand and we are also presenting GP practices where do we go from here as a kind of what happens in a I'm going to say post-COVID, which we know it's not gone away, but the term seems to be the term to use. So in a post-COVID world, we're going to be talking about how that affects practices and what we can do differently. And we do focus heavily on using your data to help you make better informed decisions and empowering you as a practice to drive your practice forward in the way that meets your priorities. So if you are around and visiting best practice, please do come and visit us. We would love to come and have a chat with you. Indeed. And if it does go out after October, there's another one in London in March that we're also going to be at. So yeah, come along and we'll happily talk to you about spreadsheets if you wish to. Also, I want to say, Tommy, uh, you know, obviously we're so appreciative of what you guys are doing. Just on this call, I think we've had three notifications from Medics Money. So clearly GPs are already out there wanting to know about the sort of things that we're about. So it's really good that we can be part of, of helping the community generally. So yeah, I think this is really valuable what you guys are doing. That's really kind. And honestly, Medics Money only works because we've managed to attract the best in the business like you guys. And it's so rewarding for me and Ed to know that our colleagues are getting the right advice because, I mean, we always say this, but you know, medical accounting is a specialism and you need a specialist. So yeah, thanks for your support, Jenna and Chris. That's really appreciated. I'm actually coming down your way for a university reunion. So if you fancy meeting up with 12 adults and 17 kids all in one house, just outside Taunton, <laughs> but I'm guessing, even though I haven't told you the date, I'm guessing you're busy, right? <laughs> it depends if it's a drop-off, we can leave ours there as well. <laughs> There's so many kids, we probably wouldn't notice. So yeah, I reckon you probably could. So yeah, thanks so much for your time and really appreciate you sharing your knowledge on the Medics Money podcast. Take care, guys. Thank you. It's been thanks a pleasure. So much.